Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. That's one of the important parts is it allows for common language to fall back to whenever these problems actually happen because they tend to be more and more complex and take more and more nuance in order to get right. And sometimes it's actually like it's it's very powerful to take it back to first principles and say, how would we do this? You know, like if we have to be ruthlessly prioritizing, are we moving uncomfortably fast and thinking of our approach? And then everyone understands because it's part of our vocabulary and it, it takes repetition to build that. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. What does it mean to operate from first principles? What does that actually look like within your engineering org? How do you leverage your values as a tool and how do they impact decision-making and behavior in your teams? And then what happens when those values are in conflict? We talk about how to leverage your values as first principles to shape your strategy and decision-making with Ludo Antonov, VP of Engineering at Whatnot. And in this conversation, we cover what operating from first principles looks like in an engineering org, some of the different product challenges and pivots that were shaped from first principle values and decisions at Whatnot, what happens when those values are in conflict, plus Ludo shares and distills tons of lessons from working across different business models. So things like two-sided marketplaces, discovery, and community and how all of those things are intersecting at whatnot and then some of these strategic considerations and impact of those business models on engineering let me introduce you to ludo ludo is the vice president of engineering at whatnot he has an extensive background in building engineering teams at fast-growing startups including hulu pinterest and lyft he led the pinterest growth team as the company was going through hyper growth up to ipo prior to joining whatnot he served as an engineering executive at lyft overseeing the company's core rideshare products, including the rider, driver, marketplace, and growth organizations. Enjoy our conversation with Ludo Antonov. Well, just wanted to kick off the recording and just say, welcome, Ludo. Excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today? What's going on in your world? I'm super excited, you know, like to chat. We're doing a lot of work. Uh, we actually just finished our very quick planning and now we're back heads down in terms of shipping user value. So it's been a good day. People are going to be listening to this and are not going to be watching it, but you and I were joking about both being in sort of getting things done mode. And I'm like, definitely, my hair is definitely a little wild. So I definitely am all in on the the, today's about (laughs) getting things done. So that's cool. To set some context for our conversation, for those listening in who've listened to our show for a long time, we've spent a lot of the time like the last couple months with a, a bunch of different guests talking about operating in like really challenging conditions or like this context of like an economic downturn or shifting to efficiency. But some of that context is is different for what you're experiencing at whatnot in that despite some of those like external conditions, things have been going relatively well for the business and that the operating constraints may be existing, but things are going really well for, for whatnot. So what has it been like at whatnot over, you know, the last six months it's we've caught up despite some of like the operating environments that most of us are in right now like have there been interesting milestones like despite some of these challenges 
Yeah, I mean, like for us, it's been really interesting. I think uh, despite the crazy market, what we've seen is a continued growth in the business. And I think we're really lucky to have an incredible community that we've built the business around and also like an incredibly focused and well-executing team. I can't say that like everything has gone 100% smooth, but we've been continuing to be like very heads down in the last few months. We expanded outside of the US. We launched in the UK. We just launched in France. We're seeing a lot of really good traction. And just from pure engineering perspective, that's helping us evolve the system to make sure that we have a much better thought out experience end to end. So it's been really great. I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like if I have a streak of really good, good days, there's always like this anxiety in the back of my head that's like, oh man, something's going to happen. And, and it's going to, to change or pivot. And I know that you've spent a lot of time considering operating principles that like in the context of engineering, in the context of whatnot, that like if that bad day does come up, you've got some really strong principles to help you figure out the next step. When we talk about operating from first principles, like how do you define that? And like, how does that application look like within engineering at whatnot? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think uh, yeah, we are definitely, especially I am a very paranoid person. Uh, <laughs> so I tend to think about what can go wrong and what will go wrong. It's a good thing to do, but obviously I think it's important to also find the time to enjoy the, you know, like the time when actually things go right. But uh, a lot of times I actually think one of the things that's been really great from our perspective is our principles, our company principles. We have 11 of them. A lot of times what I found is when things are going fine, the teams are operating. Like when things become ambiguous or when there's conflict or we see something's not working, we, we tend to actually like result back into like, okay, well, why are things not working? And then try and figure out from first principles perspective, like what is the missing gap? What are we missing? One of our principles is always to listen to customers. And we have found ourselves in, in times where we would build features and they wouldn't have the success that we think they would have. And a lot of times we would, like one of the first questions we'll ask you is like, did we actually get enough input to make sure that we're doing the right things. We're solving the problems that users actually have. Sometimes the answer is no. And I think that's been a good guiding factor in terms of us making sure that we go back and can repair that. One of our other principles that I really love is moving uncomfortably fast. And so oftentimes, especially from an engineering perspective, when you have to build something, one of two things happen, right? Like you either try to over-engineer it and set it up for something that would eventually be at the scale that it would be if it's very successful, or you under-engineer it for speed. And I find that the Goldilocks zone of just doing it right is really important. But from an engineering perspective, if we want to build a good product, you know, like oftentimes we find ourselves potentially building a little bit too much when we're thinking about how we would build that. And then when we think about like, hey, are we moving uncomfortably fast? Do we actually follow that? That helps us figure out, okay, that's how the product might look or the feature might look or the system might look in the future. But is that really necessary? Are we actually pushing the limits of what we need to do today? And just get back to like the first principles of building, delivering value and being able to really kind of accelerate that. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that like when we're talking about first principles is like the core values or like the, the leadership principles at whatnot are the first principles in which to make decisions from. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I found that like in previous companies, a lot of how we've used the core values is, is, more, as, is more as how we behave. But when you connect the same principles in terms of how we build, that, that's been something that's been really valuable in terms of making sure that we are making the right decisions day in and day out. And we also have consistency across the organization as it, as it also grows. So we don't end up with uh, some, some folks are like really into this thing and like are moving really fast and then some folks are moving really slow. It's a good equalizer across the board to make sure that we're, you know, like we're consistent. 
Yeah, the the consistency piece I feel like is is absolutely critical. I want to dive in a deep deeper and like deconstruct the way that these work and how they show up and like the decisions and the conversations and like get really mechanical there. But to like zoom back out a little bit, like the dilemma when we talk about the principle of listening to users, one thing that always stands out to me is is how easy it is to get away from that and how quickly you can default to making decisions based on your own assumptions or like what you might think is like the right product or feature decision. And having this as a first principle thing to revisit when you're making those decisions so that you're more consistently talking about those things, like I can see how that makes a course correct faster. And you can iterate through like, just like fixing that a lot quicker. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I would say like, for us, that's that's such an important principle you know, that it also has helped us build an operating rhythm around that. We have a really heavy culture around dog fooding. So nothing goes out in production before it gets dog fooded internally by the team, by the company. And even after it goes out to users, we have a channel for the important features to make sure that we can get like really quick feedback and we can address it, triage it, address it and learn from that. And again, like I, I find that having the operating principles helps us build these good habits from which we are able to actually like build upon and actually like build the features and not get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. A couple of the ones that you mentioned, I was hoping we could dig into a little bit to dive into some of the ways that these have shown up in conversations or some of the examples. So when you're talking about listening to users as a first principle to make a decision or to change your approach, can you share an example of what that looked like at whatnot? And like then the, you mentioned a couple of really powerful questions that helps change the way you approach that there. What's a good example of this? One of the recent examples that we had was around how we set up a feature called Secret Max Bit. When we first built the feature, it's really powerful in, in what it can do, but we put a lot of assumptions into how it should work and how, you know, like how people are going to use it. And we were also sprinting to, to make sure that we get it out really, really fast. And, uh, and once we actually shipped it to production, I think like we found that like in certain cases, people really loved it. In others, you know, like it was a somewhat confusing experience. After we launch something, we usually do a post-launch review of a few weeks later to kind of go through the metrics, figure out like, what is the feedback? Are we doing the right things? Or how can we improve the feature? Should we invest more? Is it worth investing more? And in that process, I think what we found is a lot of folks thought that the experience is very hidden and pretty confusing. And that sort of led us on down a path of like, let's improve the experience, but also how come we didn't catch this earlier? And I think through that, what we found is like, we had a pretty critical gap there where we weren't necessarily talking to users early enough when we were thinking about like designing features like Secret MaxBed. And to the team's credit, I think like they rallied around that and set up, I want to say like now they do weekly user interviews. And whenever something big is coming as a feature, they use these interviews as means of like actually getting deeper into, hey, how would you use something if you're really after an item and you're willing to pay for up to a certain amount? How would you imagine the experience? What would be important? Getting that information a little bit ahead of building the features has been actually really useful. And I think in large companies also, a lot of that user feedback ends up being distilled through a number of functions, usually through research and then through design and then like through a deck and then distributed to the product teams and then implemented. But again, like because we have this listen to customers culture and dog footing culture, we're pretty adamant about getting engineers to directly talk to users and be able to form that opinion and just experience the product from the user's perspective. And I think that actually has served us really well in terms of being able to make the right decisions when we're building the product. The thing that stands out to me that of, you know, in terms of like an operating model is that you have these user interviews 
that exist like sort of in permanence. Like they're always happening. They're always on the schedule. They're always a priority. And then the things that are changing is then how you're directing those conversations towards like the new features that you're building or just the the different questions you want to ask your customers. So it's like an interesting thought because like in my head, I'm like customer interviews typically are part of like a new feature launch where it's like maybe right. you do the, you know, you want a new feature, you do the research. And then so it's yeah. just like a thing that has to spin up in a cycle. But having it exist in permanence, I think is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And um, and again, like the interesting part is the way that these interview user interviews came about was again, like through us realizing that when we shipped that feature, that was a little bit of a light bulb moment that like we can be better at listening to users. So how would we design some, you know, like a way for us to do that more consistently? And that's how we came back with the user interviews. It's a few months in, so we we can optimize it quite a bit, but it's been working really great. We send notes afterwards. I, I usually read them. There's a lot of great insights there. I love it. And I love the questions in terms of like how that practice or like that modality came up, the question of how come we didn't catch this earlier? And then that generated this whole new systemic change. I think that's really great. There's a lot of examples around like your principle of moving uncomfortably fast and some of the the operating shifts that that's led to. So Zoran, can you deconstruct maybe an example of moving uncomfortably fast and how that's impacted or changed like different elements of whatnot? When we were thinking about like, hey, how do we want to compose our trust and safety system? And we started to think about like the Roo engine that we need to, to have in place and all the modeling on top of that. For whatnot, trust is at the core of what we're building. We want to think that we are building the most trusted marketplace for transacting. And uh, when, when the team was going and thinking about like, okay, how do we build the system? W- what is required? We wanted to build a, a rules engine that, that is able to like catch bad signals and bad actors and, and effectively block them from doing just bad things on the system. Generally, something like this in, in previous companies would have taken at least two, three quarters. And the team was able to get a V1 of the system out in about six weeks. It really came down to like asking questions of like, okay, well, what is necessary for the first phase? Do we need to build, you know, like everything? Can we start with like a more more modest basic system, but something that is extensible in the future? Should we try to get something off the shelf or should we build internally? And I think going through all of that decision tree massively helped simplify things and get us to the right outcome. Maybe another example that just came to mind that I also thought was really great is about our international strategy. We are a three-year-old company, and uh, last year, around May, we decided that we want to start expanding internationally. It took us about a week and a half to actually launch in Canada, and that was a really great experience. Afterwards, we decided that we want to launch in the UK, and obviously that required much more effort in terms of thinking about like what's required from a legal perspective, from local sellers' perspective, how do we bootstrap? It's a separate market. There's a lot of things that we needed to rethink. But we were able to go from pretty much from start to finish in about three and a half months to launch the UK. And then the, the great thing is like we, we were able to be pretty narrow in terms of like what is important, what is actually critical, but also think ahead in terms of like how we make sure that as we're building these things, they're sustaining us in the future. So when we actually launched France in February, from an engineering perspective, it only took us about two weeks of work. And a lot of that, again, like was about like being very, very principled going back. Another one of our principles is being able to ruthlessly prioritize. Seeing the almost design patterns, the trust and safety scenario and the international strategy scenario in which there's like sort of this minimum viable module built first with extensibility in mind with this idea of like we need to move uncomfortably fast, but we need to do it in a way in which we can then build off of that in the future. That's one of the important parts is it allows for common language to 
fall back to whenever these problems actually happen because they tend to be more and more complex and take more and more nuance in order to get right. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's actually like it's, it's very powerful to take it back to first principles and say, how would we do this? You know, like if we have to be ruthlessly prioritizing, are we moving uncomfortably fast in thinking of our approach? And then everyone understands because it's part of our vocabulary and it, it takes repetition to build that. But I think that's one, that's been one of the very powerful things here. Has there ever been a scenario in which like optimizing for a certain value was in conflict with another in which you then had to reason through, like reason through that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the dark sides of the first principles is that they can be very easily weaponized. For example, with moving uncomfortably fast, a lot of times, especially I would say early on, that could turn into an excuse for shipping things at lower quality. And we've clarified that that's like not the intent and that it's actually in conflict with our always listens to listen to customers. Because at the end of the day, if you ship something really fast, that is not delivering the intended value to users. What I love so much about all of this is like, I feel like I've been on a lifelong quest to try to like operationalize like my personal values in terms of like different elements of work. And so just to see the clarity and the actionability in which you're able to take something that can be ethereal, like a value and how that drives really concrete tactical choices and decisions within the company. And I think it's just really cool to just see that live and, and play out and have that actually inform direction. It's one of the things that I, I think we've done right. And I, I think it's been really great in terms of just setting, setting the team for success. So you've mentioned ruthless prioritization. This one seems particularly relevant to the, the situation that most people are finding themselves in right now with their company, where there's this big focus with some of the different market challenges to like one of the things you got to do, prioritize. You need to be really clear about priorities. Mm -hmm. How do you prioritize or focus on the, like, what does that look like for, for you all at whatnot? Like this ruthless prioritization, is there a criteria or framework you use to determine like what gets attention or resources from the team? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I think one of the examples that I always use for this is, um, is around how we're thinking about hiring. Mm -hmm. Generally, I, I've seen a lot of companies, once they hit success, their eyes become bigger than their stomachs and then they overhire. And that leads to a bunch of bad outcomes. So with ruthless prioritization, like again, like we always think about like, hey, like what do we have available as resources? Being very mindful that just adding more people is not is usually not going to solve the problem. So we're trying to grow very sustainably in that way. And then that ends up informing a lot of the things in terms of how we think about where we should spend our time. Again, like one of the interesting things as we were growing throughout last year, we actually made this decision to slow down hiring. And that doesn't mean to stop hiring. We're still, you know, like we're, we're still hiring, but like keep it at like same or lower velocity just to make sure that we have enough time to culturally integrate the people that we're hiring. Usually we try to do planning, assuming that there's zero headcount because this way, it forces the team to not be like, oh, if I had two more engineers, I can do X, Y, Z. Realistically, to have two mm -hmm. more engineers, it's, it will take like three months to hire them, another three months to onboard them. And then you have two engineers. But for practical application implications, you know, the current resources that are activated is what the team has. And we've, we've tried to like really constrain it to plan with the resources that you have. Uh, we do OKR planning. We usually try to constrain each team to have three OKRs and really define at a high level, what are the top three things that they need to do and not get distracted with 15 things. Just have like a very strong point of view. We usually, once we get into OKR planning, we argue whether 
these are the right three things or whether something needs to be below or above the line. But that, I think that's been actually really helpful to make sure that we have a true north compass. What do those, what are those, I, I'd love to learn what those arguments look like. Like when you, how do you weigh out the opinion? Like, let's say a team has five things yes. and you're trying to get to three. What is, what is sort of that, that prioritization conversation look like? When we do the OKR review, it needs to be three. So the team needs to decide ahead of time what the three are, uh, but they usually have a below the line and an articulation as to why. And oftentimes the way that we think about it is like, is usually in terms of impact effort and how likely is that to succeed in terms of actually improving the user experience or really impacting the top level goals that we have as a company. That assessment of impact effort, likelihood of success, and then sort of the two measurements of that being like, is it improving user experience? Is it improving business level goals? I think is a, a very clear framework for how to how to assess, I guess, the viability of a strategy. Yeah. So that, be, that becomes clear. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. I have been dying to ask you about your experience, some of your experiences in some of these, I think, just like unique business models. So things like community, social, two-sided marketplace, like these different dynamics of, of companies, because whatnot, I think is so interesting in that it is this, this blend of a lot of these really interesting elements of, of these, these different types or styles of companies. There's some leadership and strategy dynamics I was hoping we could explore um, and how they're showing up with your work at whatnot now. So I think the first story, Ludo, if you don't mind, like I'd love to just learn like some of the lessons from building the growth team at Pinterest, like from like the social side of things and like what that was like and, and maybe some of the lessons that you've extracted to apply that are relevant to Whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say uh, you're absolutely right that Whatnot is is uh, is this really interesting blend between a discovery surface, but also a two-sided marketplace and a video first surface. And that's been really interesting as a, as a hybrid to explore. I would say like probably one of the biggest things at Pinterest when we were building the, the growth team is really the measure of success because we were vying for people's time. A lot of times we would try and figure out when and how are people looking for certain things. And so if you, for example, start looking for a lunch on Google or you're looking to remodel your bathroom and then you land on Pinterest with a specific idea and then we pick up that signal. Then afterwards, we would send you a notification probably shortly after to try and get you further into this loop of exploration and ultimately get you to discover the things you love and, and get you to do them in real life. And, and that loop was actually like really important. Similarly, I would say with Whatnot, we have a pretty deep discovery surface. A lot of times users and buyers are coming for specific products, but when they're looking about things, they're exploring different, um, different sellers. Um, they're finding different products and they're trying to get a sense of what is the right thing for them. One of the very unique things for us, and I think that's one of the magical moments for whatnot, is when you enter a show, less than 20 people, the seller usually would greet you and they would be like, hey, Patrick, welcome to the show, which is really great. And then if you actually see something that you really like from their store or the things that they've displayed, you know, you can engage with them on a conversation and try and find out more about that product. And I think that level of, of really intimate discovery is pretty unique. 
unique and very hard to replicate. Whereas we are a two-sided marketplace and at the end of the day, the commercial intent is there. That's why people come to whatnot. Really that whole exploration and being able to do that with the sellers, with the community and actually do this in a much more of a fun and social way has been one of the things that I think draws a lot of parallels to what we did at Pinterest. This is such a such a fascinating insight because not many people get this like cross industry merging an application of different experiences like this. And so it's just so interesting to see sort of the discovery elements at play and how that then also interfaces with more of like the marketplace dynamics, but ultimately then how it's about creating like a much more intimate experience that like the value of those marketplaces is driven by the intimacy and the connection that you create with people, which then kind of goes into like the community element. So to me, it's like, it's just wild to see the nuance of, of those elements at play. Um, and, and that actually is one of the areas that if you look at it just from a discovery perspective, you could end up concluding that that is everything that matters. But at the end of the day, I also spent a decent amount at Lyft growing a two-sided real-time marketplace. And ultimately, the way that a two-sided real-time marketplace thrives is very different than a social service where, you know, like effectively you're vying for people's time, but you have all of the content in the world. You know, like, so really the problem is like, how do you do that matching very efficiently? Yeah. Tell us more about the transition from Pinterest to Lyft and what it was like to go from solving sort of this like discovery and matching challenge to then being on the side of like a more pure two-sided marketplace environment. What was that like? That was probably one of the most fascinating times when I went to Lyft for probably for the first six, nine months. We tried so much of the things that actually worked at Pinterest and none of them worked. Until at some point it dawned on me that the success function is very different. At Pinterest, you can actually generate intent and steal time. You use that time to basically inspire people. But it's very difficult to actually generate intent. Even, even if someone gave me like $100 right now to travel from where I am, you know, like to the other side of town, why would I do that? <laughs> the intent generation is very different. And the other part is... Once there's money involved, you know, like the transaction is not purely from enrichment content perspective, then I think the behavior completely changes. And similarly, and maybe the last thing is that the availability of supply usually ends up driving demand. But if, if demand and supply are not really in tight lockstep, it's actually incredibly difficult to grow a two-sided marketplace. So I think like the, the demand and supply elements, I can imagine probably factor into some lessons being applied at whatnot. But I, I guess like more explicitly, like what, what elements or, or lessons or insights from like that two-sided marketplace experience have you been able to apply in terms of what's going on with whatnot? Quite a bit. And I think that's where the blend between the two has been very interesting. Probably one of the most unintuitive things that has been there is that as a social network or a content network, a lot of the focus ends up being to grow horizontally, whereas a two-sided marketplace very much grows vertically. So you have to go extremely deep and understand, you know, like actually ensure that you have supply, not that just the broad level of like, let's say sneakers or clothes in general, but very specifically, like what are the specific micro categories that people care about and make sure that the supply for that is there. And similarly, the demand is built on top of that supply. And, and again, as I said, like both of these need to grow in lockstep. So if you end up at some point with too many viewers and too few sellers, then what happens is the viewers can't convert to buyers because there's too much competition and then they end up not staying around. And similarly, if you have too few viewers for a particular show or an auction, you can't generate that liquidity for the seller. And so 
then it doesn't end up really being worth their time. Just being able to really do that matching function of having enough supply and demand has been probably one of the most critical things. I just got out of a conversation earlier. The premise of the conversation was talking about how engineering can become a better contributor to shaping business strategy. And I think as we're talking through this, the the part that stands out to me is your deeper understanding of like the dynamics of these different types of business models and how that then informs the choices or the key priorities for the engineering team really makes a, a, a huge difference in terms of, of what you focus on. And then we have this layer then of like the operating principles that even further define the choices that you make in terms of how you achieve those types of priorities. So that was just like linking together a couple of these different elements. Are there Have there been other interesting, unique parts of the business model here that have been just like a ton of fun to, to work with in terms of like the context of engineering? In the context of engineering, I mean, everything is really fun because if you think about it, it's actually incredibly demanding to be able to do live auctions with thousands of people that has a video component and when people are trying to sell stuff and really get it right especially when we have big shows those are really fun we're working through the sum of the scalability on that side but in terms of like the business problems more specifically again like i I would say that one of the things that we've really benefited from is just like there there's very little abstraction between engineers and users and we're trying to like keep that very lean so we ask everyone to to be a seller at least once a month engineers will go on, they'll have like their shows, experience that the product through the eyes of the user and also like being able to dog food all the time and just experience the product from, from user perspective. I think what, what to me is, is it really makes a difference is we have a lot of really smart people and I think that's true across the valley and across a lot of the, the big companies. Just getting, you know, like employees to experience that problem is like half the battle because then there's so many ideas that that are generated. And I think like once people see the the user's pain, it's just like, it's very natural to actually go and try and address it. That's probably one of the more satisfying things is seeing just people like provide that extreme care and just fix things all the time. The next thing I wanted to ask you is Mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, everybody in the team has to be a seller at least once a month. So I'm wondering... First off, what have you like? What have you been a sell- have you have you been a seller like? And what what has been like kind of like your show? Or if you have a a favorite like whatnot team member seller or store that they have? Because I I loved this is maybe not related to the team, but when I was like doing some research, like I saw Questlove was auctioning off like different albums in his library, yep. and I have I have a very amateur like record collection of three. I've got three vinyl records, and I was like, man, if I had a chance to chat with Questlove about his taste in music. And to then pick one of his hand curated albums, like that'd be the coolest. That's the coolest experience ever is like that level of like really deeply personal curation and like intimacy with somebody who has very much more sophisticated taste than I think I would I'd say. What yeah, I just thought that was cool. But so for the team or for you, what, what's what's been a, a favorite seller? Uh, to be honest, like I, I try and acquire Funko Pops and then get online and sell them. I actually had one of the shows with my 10 year old daughter when we were doing some NFT sales and that was really fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, we didn't sell a lot of them, but it was, it was fun to experience it. From a company perspective, there are a few. I think one of the really cool ones is we have one person where every time you tip them, he'll start wrapping the chat. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, so like people would say things in the chat and they would like, he would like rap on that like real time. And that's like really fun to see. But generally we, we have a channel on Slack where when someone's going live, they're like, hey, I'm going to go live. And it's, it's, it's actually really cool. I, I've, I always have like so much fun just seeing what people are doing. And it's, it's everything from homemade cookies to, to Pokemon cards to specific 
things. It's just, it's a little bit like all over, but it's, it's really fun. Absolutely. So going back to kind of like the like engineering's Im- impact on building the business in, in like this this really unique cross functional context. What are what are some of like the differences in approaches or like I guess the different approaches for for growth in terms of like this context? Like what's different and how does engineering impact that compared to maybe other like more singular sort of oriented business models? From a, just from purely from a growth perspective, one of the big growth drivers that we have is is actually the community, right? So for us, it's been really important to to think about like how do we make sure that we have the best sellers on the platform and design the experience around that. More specifically, though, from an engineering perspective, it's really interesting because if you think about it at scale, and actually Andrew Chan has a really good article on this. Like, there's only five ways to grow at scale. Um, mm-hmm. You can grow through content, you know, like an SEO. You can go through virality and referrals. You can go through paid marketing. You can go through sales channels and partnerships. And usually all the different tactics tend to stack into one of these channels. We are very big on community. You know, like, so a lot of what we focused on is, like, is on the referral uh, side and making sure that when someone comes online, they can find their friends, they can find their community, and they can actually have fun in that experience. That's probably one of the primary ones. But we also like have, like our go-to-market team, as I said, is, is also extremely great. And so from a, from a sales channel perspective, we have a pretty good motion. At the end of the day, the goal is like really for us to occupy like all of the five tiers and find what is uniquely working for whatnot as a company. I appreciate laying out the roadmap of those those five tiers. I think that's great. Ludo, are there are there any dynamics at whatnot related to like the different style, the collision of these different styles of businesses that we haven't covered yet that you think would be exciting to call out in terms of like an engineering leader trying to understand a completely different world slash like business style that they've never been immersed in? Like what what would be anything else you'd want them to know about what it's like to operate like in this context? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I, I think like just to bring it back to like first principles, it is just really important to understand, to go back and like just listen to users and listen to what they want and you know, like what they need and and build the strategy and the product around that. I find like oftentimes it, it can be very tempting to slap like an existing business model or just kind of like revert to something that folks know or have used in, in a previous company. And then usually for me has always ended up being the wrong approach. Even if that would be a starting point, I think it's just really important to deconstruct it and just very uniquely see how how it applies to the user base. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you breaking down this sort of intersection for how leadership principles shape the direction of a interesting collision of of social, of community, of discovery, of two-sided marketplaces all sort of coming together for the whatnot experience. Um, I think it's been really cool to see how it all works together because I think what can be so opaque is the way a leadership value translates to concretely and materially impacting the direction of a business and the products that get chosen. So I just have really enjoyed being able to understand all of the different ways that it actually materially shapes like the features that and, and the decisions that you all are making. So I think it's really cool. I've got a couple of rapid fire yeah. questions for you. Yeah, go for it. If you're ready to wrap up with those. Yes. All right. So first rapid fire question. What are you reading or listening to right now? I am finishing The Upside of Stress. It's a great book, highly recommended. And I find that it's really reshaping my relationship with stress, which actually turns out it is really important to be stressed. <laughs> That's an interesting, that is an interesting book that maybe is, is a contrary uh, opinion. So probably like for me, I'm like, oh, like, no, avoid stress. Yeah. So I'm gonna check that one out. That sounds good. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? 
back in the day, I got really jazzed when I, you know, like when I was reading a bit about like Agile versus Kanban as a development framework in terms of how you can you know, get more velocity out. And I was a very big Kanban fan. Why it had a lot of impact on me was um, the controlled chaos around Kanban, where you can have everything and nothing all at once, but you don't have to be very linear in terms of how do you get from point A to point B. But if you assume that you have the right people and they will do the right things, you can very much optimize on getting a lot of throughput. That's a great distinction. What's a trend you're seeing or following that's been interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? I'm I'm very much following the generative AI, but I think that's that, that has hit mainstream media, but not maybe mainstream 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 yet. But um, I, I'm actually I'm continuing to be amazed by the applications that you know, like that are coming from transformers, LMs, and GPT in general. Have you seen any interesting use cases from like for, like sellers on the whatnot platform that are applying it? Like, has there been any interesting intersections with whatnot? We, we haven't seen anything yet, um, but we do have like a few really interesting things planned. You know, like, so I don't want to spoil them, you know, but I think it would, <laughs> be, it would be really interesting to see if they prove effective. I love the, the dangling, the little, the little tease, and we'll, we'll check back in on, on the progress there. Last question, Ludo, to wrap us all up. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? There's one quote that I, I've been using a little bit more lately. It comes from a book called Crossing the Chasm. And uh, in there, there was a quote that most companies fail because of failure of will, not failure of knowledge. I find that to be extremely true. It's the discipline, you know, like to do the right thing that ends up to the right result. Um, and that's very hard. And so I personally like to remind myself and the team as well, especially when we get through some oscillations that we, we need to be very disciplined and just knowing what the right thing is, is not sufficient. We actually need to do it in practice. Absolutely. To connect the dots from two high-level trends from what we talked about today, consistency in terms of leveraging your principles to drive decisions, and then the discipline, which ultimately will drive the success of the company. Ludo, a ton of fun. Thank you so much for an incredible conversation. Yeah, thank you. It's great. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.